This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. The sexual assault allegations against Judge Brett Kavanaugh feel very familiar to our teachers. They say too many of their kids have similar stories to tell. Plus, should schools end their football programs? Our teachers may want them to, but see no practical way that would ever happen. Those topics plus kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking educators who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Elaine Jarden, what do you do in education now? I am a school counselor in training. And you used to be in the classroom, correct? Yes. For how many years? Ten years. Ten years. David Muhammad, you join us by Skype for this episode because you have been roped into some babysitting duties. But David, when you're not babysitting, what do you teach? I teach uh, high school economics and international relations. And once again, we have a new teacher joining us from Chicago. Proud to introduce Laura Ferdinand. What do you do in Chicago public schools? I'm a curriculum coordinator for a pre-K to 8 elementary school on the southwest side. Well, let's get to our first topic, and it's a big one, a big, messy, complex topic. I don't think any of us thought that when the process to confirm Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court began a few weeks ago that it would lead to a heated national discussion about sexual assault, consent, and the complexities of teenage culpability. And yet... Here we are. As we tape this, Kavanaugh is set to return to Capitol Hill to testify before a U.S. Senate committee about allegations that when he was 17, he sexually assaulted a 15-year-old girl when they were both in high school more than 30 years ago. His accuser, Christine Blasey Ford, also at the time of this taping, appears to also be set to testify before the Senate committee sometime in the coming days. That could, of course, change dramatically by the time you listen to this, but we don't want to talk about the Kavanaugh situation per se. However, we want to use it as a jumping off point to a larger conversation that many teenagers, parents, and educators seem to be having right now as this is going on. I do want to ask the teachers, do the details of this alleged incident resonate with your um, experiences as a teacher and what you uh, may hear from your students, what your students uh, may talk about themselves? Does it resonate with you at all as an educator? Yes, we've had multiple incidents students accusing others of sexual misconduct and wanting to get the school involved in that just this year. I do have to be really careful. Yeah, yeah. So the... Um, and you can think through it. That's perfectly accuser fine. Accuser may obviously not want to be in classes with the accused, may not want to see them in the hallways. And so we're looking at how do we protect both parties because the school does not investigate. You know, we are not the legal side of what's happening, but our job is to protect students. And so um, it's just been really interesting to watch how that all unfolds in the most equitable way possible. And you have to be mindful of both the accused and the accuser. I mean, yeah, until we have a legal decision telling us otherwise, we aren't the ones that decide who's at fault or what may or may not have happened. Um, But we are seeking to protect both students as best we can. Yeah. Uh, Laura, David, uh, anything like this come up in your work? The students in my school are 
a little bit younger. Um, and so we have experienced reports from students coming to us telling us about situations that have happened in their families with neighbors or other people in the community. And even at these young ages, the most important thing that we do as a staff is to listen with open ears and to give them the space that they need to come forward. It's the idea of what kind of a message are we sending to young women about their accusations and about the way that we listen to them. So we try as hard as we can in my school to keep a space open for that and to help them know that whatever they say is going to be held in confidence and that we're going to help them because we care about who they are as humans. Yeah. I think we've seen in the, in the, in the days leading up to when we tape this that um, some people who have education in mind are calling this national conversation around the Kavanaugh confirmation a teachable moment. Um, I will just also, just to put some context to it, point out that a comprehensive survey of teens published in the Journal of Adolescent Health in 2014 shows that um, sexual assault among teens is pretty common. One in five young people under 18 say they've been victims of sexual assault. So this this is um, disturbingly common. Is this a teachable moment in any way? Do you see this particular controversy over Brett Kavanaugh and the allegations against him being something that uh, uh, kids can learn from for better or worse? My students are not plugged in on the whole to what's going on with Judge Kavanaugh. While the parallels can be seen really clearly between a lot of the stories that we hear about students and former students it's almost like a disconnect. And I think what I've learned is that my time in the classroom taught me that the most um, authentic conversations have to be led by the students. And so if students bring up questions based on what's in current events, if students ask about what is happening in the world, then that's when, as teachers, we try and capitalize on that from the teachable moment. Uh, David, Elaine, a teachable moment out of this at all? Yeah, I mean, my context is different because I teach social studies and I have high school age kids. So there's many teachable moments. I mean, we've used it as discussion to question, you know, are, are women truly equal in society today? Because um, it kind of fell during one of our units in, in uh, U.S. history about the progressive era and looking at the women's suffrage movement. And, and then like in international relations, they've been researching it and looking at the effect that it has on how America is viewed and those types of things. So I think there's a lot of teachable moments. Um, I do agree you have to also let the, the kids kind of take it give them some responsibility to take it where they want. But the kids, you know, once they hit 15, 16, they're hearing everything. They're on Twitter, they're watching TV. And I think that these things circulate in their minds and they need to have a place to process it, even if it's just researching it further to understand the details. Because so much of the news that they get is like instant news, you know, but nothing with depth. They just like hear, like Brett Kavanaugh this, you know, or Trump this, and they don't go beyond the heading. So I think that they need a space where they can like, see the heading and then like research more and find out more. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned social media. So this has been a pretty big topic on social media, even among young people. Um, point out one tweet that was, I think, retweeted more than 100,000 times. Emma Thatcher, a high school student in Florida, um, she actually identifies herself as politically active and conservative. On her Twitter bio, she tweeted this, quote, Hello, female high school student here. I would just like to say that the emergence of this whole 
teenage boys should get a pass because they're not mature enough to understand consent narrative is probably one of the most unsettling things I have ever witnessed, end quote. That's the end of her tweet. I go back to something, you know, Elaine, you said right off the top of this conversation that, uh, you know, you're getting a lot of allegations and and, and complaints um, from students Mm -hmm. um, about... And their parents. And and their parents about Mm -hmm. sexual assaults. How do... I think I, I want to focus the question really on, on girls right now. I mean, how do girls feel about this topic, about sexual assault? Is, do they feel like it's being addressed, not even just within the school, but just socially, um, or that their voices have equal weight? That's interesting because one of the questions that I ask students when they come to see me about this type of issue is like, who are some safe adults in your life? And there are a lot of students who are really only talking to their school counselor about these things. So I would say, yeah, so I would say generally, like, they're not feeling heard and they're not feeling safe. And we also offer a group on dating safety, basically, that kids can choose to participate in. You know, and we have about 10 to 15 percent of our student body that is interested in participating in that, which tells me that's one of our most popular groups. It's something kids want to talk about and need to talk about, but um, they don't have the space to do that. Uh, is there institutional encouragement for kids to kind of get that education and get that get a grounding in that in that material? I think from some adults, yes, but I think there are many who are like, oh my gosh, it's middle school. It's not real. You know, it's not a real concern. These things are for much older students, but no, like we're absolutely seeing it already at our level and it's a big education process for the adults too. Yeah. Uh, David, you work in a, in a school, you kind of alluded to it earlier, where there have been problems like this. Uh, do girls feel like they're being heard? I'll say that our, we've had a larger involvement in like our feminist club. I think a lot of girls are starting to recognize that they feel like they've been objectified. Um, and some of them mm-hmm. don't know how to express their hurt or where to go um, because they don't want to they don't want to ruffle feathers. They don't want to create any issues that might remove them outside of certain friend groups or whatever. So I think that, you know, some of you say more about girls, that. What do you mean when you say ruffle feathers? What are they worried about? What will happen? Well, you what know, are the social costs for them? And this is how I was saying the comparison of uh, Brett Kavanaugh and what I see where I'm at. You know, when I was reading about like the party environment and the the way the situation happened, it sounded so familiar to the types of things that happen at the high school parties that I hear kids talk about. And those are, those are places where kids establish their social, social uh, setting and, and where they rank socially. And that's something that kids work hard to try to, you know, bring up. They don't want to be the one that might accuse some of those very boys who were hosting the parties and considered popular of doing these things because now everybody's going to look at them as being some outsider. Everybody's going to say you're bringing the whole system down. Yeah. Do boys? You know, I mean, and, for for all of you, do boys still have the control? Uh, um, I mean, in, socially, uh, hierarchically within the school, are, are boys still the ones that are are in control? Yes, a hundred percent. Absolutely. Again, like there was that underground newspaper that they had that Mark Judge was talking about. Mm-hmm. We have an underground newspaper, too, that comes out once a year, and it talks about who's doing with who, and it uses names, and it's, like, anonymously written, and it's just terrible. It's it, it, I mean, like, it includes a lot of, of anecdotes and stories and details about students' personal lives. Yep, and uh, it's all boys. It's all boys who are anonymous, and all the kids know who it is, but they won't tell on them, even though 
they might be the ones getting talked about. Well, there is this kind of like, I guess, counter narrative in the Kavanaugh situation, the whole boys will be boys argument. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, You see that a lot. A writer on Fox News website said it was, you know, what was alleged amounts to, in his words, drunk teenagers playing seven minutes of heaven. Uh, There's a, a, a... a group interview that's making the rounds um, of self-identified Republican women talking to CNN's Anderson Cooper. And, and one of the women says, well, you know, what teenage boy hasn't done something like this? Um, and I wonder how those arguments, uh, how you all as teachers and educators who work with young people, girls and boys, uh, how you react to arguments like that. It's only been in the past couple of years that I've heard boys asking questions about like, So what do I do if I thought I had consent and then somebody turns around and says that actually they didn't give consent? What am I supposed to do then? That's Um, progress. It really is progress. Yeah. Yeah. Then on the flip side, um, probably not at your school, Laura, but David, I'm wondering if it's happening at your school, the smash or pass game. Explain. Um, So basically, like, boys will look at a girl, like, in the lunchroom or something, and they'll be like, smash or pass. And then they'll all look and say, like, smash, which would be like, would you have sex with her or pass, would you not? Yes. And they're doing this out loud. Oh, yeah. I mean, no, not trying to hide it. Oh, not at all. And luckily, our administration is responding to that with a lot of strength, which I appreciate. Um, But I think that's just a really blatant example of the boys will be boys culture, too. So I see some progress, some not. So I think I find that dichotomy really interesting, Elaine, that Mm -hmm. boys appear to, at least some boys appear to be certainly more mindful of it, asking questions about consent. And then you still have, uh, I think, what you might consider more kind of the kinds of things, smash or pass, that have been going on for for decades and and ages beyond that. Um, How do you explain that that dichotomy? Is it just like we're, we're kind of in a liminal area where we are maybe evolving, but we just haven't gotten far enough? Or is it some boys and not others? Or I think it's some and not others. And I think a lot of it hinges on conversations that adults in their lives are having or are willing to have with them. Um, Like I've noticed a lot of the questions come from uh, questions about consent come from a lot of kids in the same homerooms. And so that makes me think that, oh, those teachers must be having some kind of conversation that's then leading kids to ask. Which gets me to another topic that I, I do want to talk about as well, which I guess what is the, the, the school's role, um, if any, in addressing problems that can arise from, from such situations that might involve, um, you know, social drinking, sexual assault? Uh, does it ever spill over into school? What is the school's role in addressing these issues? I feel like the school has to be a place that sets norms and establishes, uh, establishes expectations. I mean, some of the the buildup of boys in this culture comes from the schools. We reward the boys for being the athletes and, you know, strong-willed. And we've seen, we've all seen statistics about boys being more willing to speak in class and all these kind of things. So I think we applaud boys and braggadocious machoism behavior way faster than we applaud a a loudspoken female, uh, an outspoken female, excuse me. So I think that schools have to start showing what it is that they want to be represented throughout society. We have to be like micro communities of that. Yeah. Laura, you were going to say something? I, our school has um, really tried to start the process of creating um, universal social emotional learning for our students and especially the middle school students regarding uh, romantic relationships and what it's like to be dating and things like that, um, just so that kids have a space to ask questions uh, from teachers who obviously care about them. And I think that that's a 
a nice approach to take, especially when really what so much of this feels like is just kids being too afraid to ask or not having someone that they trust to be able to reach out to. And if we could just kind of break that cycle, um, some real real change could happen. And it's not going to be overnight, but we've got to start somewhere. You know, for some kids growing up in privileged uh, circumstances, oftentimes their bad behavior is dismissed as, you know, it is just boys being boys or kids being kids and they'll grow out of it. Whereas other communities, especially uh, kids of color, lower income kids are not afforded uh, that type of leeway when they do something uh, wrong or make a mistake when they're a juvenile. And so I just wanted to end this conversation with, a, with some questions about how responsible should we hold um, uh, teenagers or, or people who are under 18 who are not to the legal age of adulthood yet when they make poor decisions, whatever those poor decisions may be, um, if it is even as something as serious as sexual assault or rape, how responsible should we hold them for, for the rest of their lives? This whole entire, really the last two years, but especially the last week or so has really brought stark contrast to the situations that the students that I work with deal with on a daily basis in terms of if they make a mistake, they could pay for, you know, years to come. And it could be a much less severe or less intentional mistake. And we talk to our students all the time about the importance of, you know, carrying yourself with honor and being a person who is aware of the people around them and the situations around them. But then they see in the media that people consistently get away with this. And and so to me, it feels very much like a reckoning in terms of, well, what are we doing for young men and women who make mistakes in minority populations and how are we kind of sealing their fate over the course of time and what are we doing to change that narrative for students like mine. I think rehabilitation is something that we think about a lot working with the population that I work with and we spend so much time as educators thinking about how do we restore relationships after damage has been done. But then in the criminal justice system, it's kind of like a full stop, your life is over, um, you've lost your liberty. It's a fine line between how do we help kids recognize the damage that they've done to any relationship, whether it's a minor damage or a much more severe damage, and then where do we go from there? And how do you accept the responsibility for that? How do you atone for those mistakes? And then how do you move on and not make those mistakes again? The whole picture is missing on both ends, whether it's a community of color, they're missing the redemption. And if it's a community of privilege, they're missing the apology. And so both ends are really struggling to make make it all work. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. On to our second segment. If we needed it again, we were given another reminder recently of the physical toll football takes on those who play the game. 
Now ex-NFL player Vontae Davis made international headlines when he retired in the middle of a game. He justified his decision by citing his fears about the long-term health effects playing football would have on him and by extension his family. Davis wrote after his retirement, quote, While I was on the field, I just didn't feel right, and I told the coaches I'm not feeling like myself. I also wondered, do I want to keep sacrificing? And truthfully, I do not, because the season is long, and it's more important for me and my family to walk away healthy than to willfully embrace the warrior mentality and limp away too late, end quote. Well, football's health effects are also a major issue for Middle and high school students around the country who play on their school's football teams a few years ago, an analysis presented to the White House by the Purdue Neurotrauma Group concluded that each year about 264,000 high school students suffer traumatic brain injury or some other cognitive impairment as a result of playing football. And so I wanted to know, as the NFL season kicks into high gear, do your students play football if they do do you see the effects of it in class definitely yes yes to both they play football and i see effects of it and to be clear you you work in a middle school Mm -hmm. so your middle school has a team yes what are the effects um, well, I think there's the physical effects. So we see concussions a lot and other injuries. But um, if you want to talk about the boys will be boys culture, I absolutely see it being bred on our school's football team. And that's interesting. I want to get more into that. But I know, David, you teach at a high school that has a pretty prominent football team. And I wonder how you see that playing out in your class in terms of head trauma, first of all. Yeah, I mean, the concussion rates every year have gone up. It's terrifying. And you see kids who were really solid students just almost be completely out of it. Um, So that's definitely scary. But then as far as from a cultural standpoint, during football season, football's king. Mm -hmm. I mean, like if if a good a good football player's grades are not that great, you're going to you're going to get a message from the athletic director and the coach. And what can we do? And everything's centered around those kids. And that's the most important thing on campus, and it's a money maker. And parents are very—if you think you have helicopter parents for ed- academics, football parents—I couldn't imagine being in that mm-hmm. cycle. Yeah. Uh, well, well, all three of you have brought up uh, concerns both about health, but also ancillary concerns around, uh, uh, as well around uh, the culture that that football can breed at a high school. So I did want to to quote at length a, a recent and much shared opinion piece for Ed Week that two researchers, uh, Randall Curran and Jason Blockus, argue that uh, schools should end their football programs. They argue, in fact, that it is against the educational mission of schools to provide an activity that has such a high rate of injury and cognitive damage. M- much of their argument is based on the uh, the health effects of football. And I did want to quote at length a part of their argument. To quote them, Curran and Blockhuse is sponsoring an activity that causes disabling brain injury compatible with educators' responsibilities to students. Are there compensating educational benefits for playing tackle football that justify the risks? Does the putative consent of players or their parents relieve educators and administrators of their duty to protect students? The answers to these questions are clearly no, no, and no, end quote. Would you like to see your schools get rid of football? Is that even practical, (laughs) given its popularity? Uh, I don't know if it's practical. I mean, you know, and this is something that I take kind of personal because I'm a martial arts instructor, you know, and I... I, I I mean, we have kids sparring and going to tournaments, and I've never had a kid get a concussion, not one time. It really concerns me. Like, what are we saying? Like, 
Is it just, are we just so in love with the brutality of it that we're going to let it slide? But I don't know if we can kill, I don't think we could let it go. I'd be crazy to think that we could just let football go. It's a money thing. It's a pride thing. It's a culture thing. Look how passionate people get about just the national anthem at a football game. Uh, As educators, do you feel a duty of yours to to try to keep students from playing football? I mean, do you feel... How do you feel about that? I mean, is it does it does it bother you as an educator that your students are are participating in an activity that can be so damaging, especially to their cognitive ability? I think there's this myth that football is going to be the way that kids pay for college um, because there's so many members on a football team. Kids think it's more attainable than other sports, maybe. And we have to get over that hump because at least where I'm teaching, most of them are not going to college on an athletic scholarship, let alone a football scholarship. But football is treated as if it's this key that's going to unlock their future. You have have students talking like this. And parents. That they they think they they see football as a a financial way forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think that... um, 200 years from now, we'll probably look back on this era and think, oh, this was like the gladiators, you know, thinking about um, putting kids in some sort of arena for the pleasure of an audience and and not really giving any thought to the physical and psychological damage that that plays on on the actual participants. And so although my father, who is a football lover and a football coach um, will be very angry by me saying this. I think that we need to encourage kids to look for other avenues to pursue their own talents um, and try and give them opportunities. I totally agree that, you know, the idea of just taking a football program out of a school that it's been such a big part of the culture doesn't work. But if we can start to change younger kids' minds or if we can start to have parents choose different sports for these kids, then by the time they get to high school, football won't be such a huge draw. But it's not going to be something that you can just switch on and off um, overnight because, you know, for some kids, for the kids who are really, really good, this is their ticket. And what would it be like if they didn't have that, um, if we had never fostered any other skills and talents in them? Uh, My fear, though, is that I don't know if we're going to ever... I don't know if we're going to look back and be like, well, that was like this gladiator era. Cause I feel like, yeah, it's like, what will, what, what I'm afraid of is where will we be in 200 years? Like, will it be worse? Mm-hmm. You know, because if you watch the games, you're, these guys are rewarded for being completely savage with the way in which they, they play. And if you, if you go watch a, like a pop one, a little league game it's like the same energy from the parents like it's like hit him take him out like you hear them talking it's like oh my goodness Mm -hmm. like like is this ingrained in us to like love it do you do any of you actively discourage students from playing football the football coaches are too powerful they are they're the most well-paid people in the building aside from the administrators oh the the coaches absolutely yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. one of our football coaches he would he might have been paid better than one of the administrators i mean and that's other money but like you tell kids that they don't play football, you're going to get parents, you're going to get coaches, you're going to get other teachers, administrators, you know. It's just not even worth it. Well, we will move on. Before we get to kids these days, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. Headlines. 
Hurricane Florence dropped upwards of 30 inches of rain on parts of North Carolina, and that state is still dealing with catastrophic flooding. Many schools there are closed indefinitely as districts deal with damaged buildings and inaccessible roadways. North Carolina is now considering exempting some districts from state law requirements that say schools need to be in session at least 185 days in a year. The Texas State Board of Education is drawing controversy once again. The board recently voted to make several changes to the state's required social studies curriculum in an effort to, as the board put it, streamline material students needed to know. And among other things, the board voted to take out any mention of Hillary Clinton or Helen Keller from sections on citizenship. It also removed a phrase referring to, quote, the optimism of the many immigrants who sought a better life in America, unquote. And give the kids some credit. Teenagers seem to know they're spending too much time on their phones. A new survey of teens ages 13 to 17 by the Pew Research Center shows that 54% of respondents admit they spend too much time on their phones. A similar percentage say they've actually taken steps to try and cut back on their phone use. But before you tisk tisk adults, slightly more than half of teens also say their parent is too often distracted on their phone when the teenager is trying to have a conversation with them. Those are some of the education headlines that caught our eye recently. Coming up, Kids These Days, but first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours, giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Elaine, at the middle school level, what are the kids into? Oh my gosh, guys, I'm so pumped because scrunchies and slap bracelets are back. And it's fantastic. It's a blast from the past. It is, and I love it. So in the lunchroom, I mean, there are slap bracelet swaps going on. It just I feel like I fit right in. That was my heyday, and yeah, I mean, I'm I, reliving it right now. I had a whole – my desk was full of slap bracelets mm-hmm. when I was in sixth grade. And I, you could trade them. They do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, trade them. All right. <laughs> slap bracelets are back. So are scrunchies, acid wash jeans. <laughs> Haven't noticed, but stay tuned. Okay. Uh, David, what are your kids into at the high school level? Sadly, kids these days are still getting caught vaping. Uh, It's not a week that goes by that teachers are walking into the bathroom and finding kids vaping. And we've got it down to a science now where we walk into the office and it's suspension and keep moving. Yeah. So they're vaping in school. Some of them vape in class. Some of them are slick. Um, Nobody's done it to me, I don't think. I watch pretty close, but they'll, you know, wear a hoodie. And kind of put their hand over their mouth, and you hear a kind of a, you know, and I say, ah, I got you. But uh, yeah, they they do it in school. It's pretty bad. We had to have an in service um, about it just to teach us about the different types of, you know, vaping mechanisms that are out there. Yeah, we we've talked about Juul before in a segment on a previous episode, and I think a teacher who was on at that time said that they they've caught kids like blowing. blowing into like the sleeve of their shirt to kind of hide mm-hmm. the smoke. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, Laura in Chicago, what are the kids into? 
Our middle schoolers are um, really obsessing over high school applications. The um, high schools are all starting their open house and uh, visitor opportunities, and the kids are trying to figure out where they're going to apply and what kind of programs they're looking for and, you know, how far away their parents will let them go from home. So it's a really massive undertaking every fall, and it takes up most of the school year for our eighth graders. Yeah, and from 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 what I've read and know about, it's kind of like New York in, in that regard. Like, I mean, the, the, coll- uh, the high school um, application process can be very... Um, intense and nerve-wracking. Yes. They changed the program. Um, In the past, you could apply if you were interested in a specialized program. So whether that was like a vocational program or if you were looking to go to a selective enrollment high school, you would have to apply to those places. But if you just wanted to go to your neighborhood school, you didn't have to do any special applications. But now for the last two years, well, this is the second year, that every kid has to apply even if they only want to go to their neighborhood high school. And so it adds a lot of um, stress to kids, and it's a really great learning experience, but it does weigh heavily on them at this time of year. Uh, well, thanks to our teachers this week, Elaine Jordan, David Muhammad, Laura Ferdinand in Chicago. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. <laughs>